Hey everyone, my name's Jen. I'm a licensed minister, a certified trauma-informed coach, and your host. Today we're here to say the pain. the pain a podcast brought to you by new course coaching a trauma-informed coaching company focused on trauma recovery Diana Roberts with us. She is a patient care tech at Mary Greeley Hospital in Ames, Iowa, while also assisting her husband as youth pastor at New Life Church. Diana, welcome and thank you for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. For sure. So, Diana, you've shared with me a little bit um, about kind of who you are, where you come from, and your story seems to start when you were about seven years old. So maybe we could kind of just jump right in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. I think about when I was six or seven, um, I experienced sexual abuse within my family and it's quite the traumatic experience. Um, Growing up, we had a lot of families stay with us from my parents' country, from when they migrated here. So we were constantly surrounded by family in our home, and it was very hard to be separate from each other. And so we were always around each other. And um, my uncles spent a lot of time with us, and unfortunately, I did experience sexual assault for various years. And... um, I want to say it was a range of 7 to 12 years old um, that I experienced a lot of sexual assault and I did experience rape. Uh, It was a lot to process as a young child having to go through something so traumatic various times and having this idea that if I told anyone that my family would be harmed or that I would be harmed and I just always had this idea that I had to protect my family and I couldn't tell anyone and it just made growing up as a young child very difficult. Uh, So growing up I was a very carefree child. I loved being outdoors. I was very close to my family, Um, just very outgoing. I loved to make new friends and growing up... um, within a Hispanic household, I mean, you're constantly, (laughs) you're constantly around people, you're hosting parties. I mean, we're very, we're very social, a very social community. And, um, and I loved it. I loved being around people. I loved meeting new people, making new friends and just talking and doing all these things. And then going through this experience, unfortunately, I did have a lot of trouble connecting with my dad and I did have a lot of trouble connecting with other men and people um, my age and also older. It was it was very rough um, growing up because I had trouble making friends um, at that point and I was very quiet afterwards. A lot of people did notice and um, my mom would always ask as well like if I was okay and she'd be like yeah I'm fine you know nothing's, nothing's wrong I'm okay and I always had this um, facade when I was around people. I I did a lot of pretending. Um, I called it my little acting. I had a had a little name for myself actually that when I was out in public I was going to be. I called myself Victoria, and I was going to be this really fun person. But um, deep down, I was really struggling socially to connect with people my age, kids my age, and then of course losing that really close relationship with my dad that I had was very hard on myself, and not just myself, but my dad as well. Um, Him and I would always 
we would always go out and play in the playground and sports was our thing. We'd always connect over sports and there was a sudden shift um, once the abuse started that I could not be alone with my dad. No matter how much my brain would tell me that my dad would never harm me, I had this um, preconceived idea that I could not be alone with any man at all, no matter how close they were to me because other close family had hurt me. And um, I just lost that connection with my dad and it was very sad. <laughs> and then looking back, once I was older, I, I just felt so bad that I had that idea and then um, carried this guilt that I had lost his relationship with my dad, which fortunately we are a lot closer now and um, we do talk all the time. Of course, we live in the same town, so we're always seeing each other, but it was it was difficult growing up socially. Yeah. So when you described the the separation of when I go out, I'm going to be Victoria. Mm -hmm. And what was the association? Like, where did that idea and how yeah. old are you when you developed that concept? Yeah, I think I was maybe around seven or eight years old. I had a friend named Victoria <laughs> <laughs> and Victoria was the best. She was super cool. Um, her family always bought her all these things and we'd always go out to her house. She was the cool house. Um, her mom always had snacks out and we could come anytime. And she was just super social. She had all the friends. Um, she was the one who always brought cupcakes for everyone on their birthday. Um, you didn't even have to ask. Her mom would already know and she'd just walk in with all these cupcakes. And um, I wanted to be Victoria. I wanted to be that person that... I used to be, and I had a loss throughout that time of sexual abuse, so. And when you say you identified as that when you were out in public, mm -hmm. did you know that, like, you were acting different, like, in your home? Like, did you, because you wanted to be Victoria, mm -hmm. so you were going to be that in public. Yes. But in private, yeah. like, what was Diana? Yes, in private, Diana was quiet. She did not leave her room. She did not talk to her parents unless parents asked a question. Um, I did not want to go outside. I did not want to play. My friends would come knock on the door, and I'd say, oh, I can't. My mom said I can't. Um, but it was always me. I just, I was very... I was sheltering myself really from everyone because I just didn't want to be hurt again by someone that I knew and loved. And so um, whenever we'd leave the house, I'd always say, I'm going to be Victoria today. I'm not going to be this person that I don't want to be. I'm going to be what I would love to be out there. And so it was very hard. I, I knew deep down that that was not me and I knew deep down that I could be that person, but I just could never, could never get out of the hole that I felt I was stuck in. Mm. And it mainly had to do because my family did stay with us. The family that did abuse me lived with us for, I want to say, three to four years. So around the time that I was nine was when they moved out into their own place. So I think once that happened, I did kind of let go a little more. I was a little bit more free in my space. But it was difficult still. I still always had that reminder that I was not Victoria and I would never be Victoria because I was different now. So it sounds like there was just so much shame for who you really were. Yes, definitely. There was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt. Um, culturally, I mean, we were a Hispanic household. Um, it, there's so much that goes within the home. Like if you're abused or if you have depression, if you have some sort of mental health issue, um, ADHD, that does not exist. <laughs> um, that is not something that exists in the Latino community and it's very, very stigmatized and there's a lot of victim blaming and I knew if I said something that my family would have something to say, not necessarily my parents, but just other family members, other friends that we were close with, I knew they would talk and I knew that it would bring a lot of regret is what I thought I would bring into my life. And so I just thought if I could hold on to that shame and not bring the shame within my family members, then I could save them from feeling this guilt that I was feeling as well. So yeah, it was, it was very hard, especially as a young child, you 
you should be carefree. You should do the things that you do as a child, go out and play and stuff. And, and I just did not give myself that liberty because I had to protect people. Mm-hmm. So like, even though your family, like you, you felt like, I love my father. I love my mother. I feel like they love me. And mm-hmm. was your brother born at that point? He was at nine. Yes. Okay. Nine years old, when I was nine years old, was when my brother was born. So he was around at that time, yeah. And did that dynamic change anything in your life? Um, It did, actually. I mean, we had Andy. That's my brother. Um, We were very close. I loved watching Andy. I think I kind of saw myself as a protector. So I felt like I needed to be around and just keep him safe. Um, Not necessarily from family, but I just felt like I had that responsibility and him and I were very close, and my parents loved us equally. Um, yeah. And so for you, it was just kind of somebody that you actually took on. Like, it's yes. my duty to protect. It is my duty to protect. Um, I never really saw him as a younger brother. And it's funny because even now he'll say, okay, mom, when I say things. Because <laughs> um, I do. I look I look out for him more than I probably should. I should let him make some mistakes, um, let him mess up and figure things out on his own. But I'm very much um, someone who looked after him in the aspect that, I was not a sister. I was more of a protector. And in a sense, I kind of saw myself as a mom <laughs> to him, um, even at a young age, which is crazy, you know. But then also feeling like you had to protect your parents. Yes, yes. I was responsible for everything, which is a really big weight on a six to nine year old child. Um, it was my responsibility at that time. I had to take care of everyone. And then looking ahead, so they've moved out at nine, and you said the abuse continued until 12? Yes. So my parents, um, they worked all the time. My dad had two jobs. He worked daytime and overnight. And then my mom worked at a restaurant day and evenings um, just to bring in money since we were not um, doing the best financially at that time. So I spent a lot of time at my aunt's place, which is, of course, where my uncles lived. And... I mean, the majority of the time I would spend there probably Monday through Saturday, then Sunday. So I was around them all the time until I was around 12, which is when we moved and I started being on my own after school and stuff. So, And so the, the years of abuse were from about 6 to 12. Yes. yes. And you still viewed yourself as the protector in your home. Yes. And was that still until 12? Yes. I think it was still around 12, 11, 12. Um, But around that time is also when I started to realize, like, what is the need for me to be the protector? Um, I looked at other family dynamics, and I was like, this is not right. I um, would go over to my friend's house all the time, and I'd be like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Like, don't you have things to do? Like, she's like, you mean, like, chores? And I'm like, no. Like, <laughs> like I don't know, taking care of your household? And she's like, no, that's that's my mom's job. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> I, I just had this idea that, not, I mean, I didn't just protect my family, but I had to do things for them, and I had to... Um, take care of them. And so when I would go over to other people's houses and I'd see that, I'd be like, wow, this is way different from what I know. Um, why aren't they doing this? And I started to like question things and, um, I would see the trust within other families and it was not the same. Uh, I think my parents thought it was the same. And I think I just did a great job of putting up that facade that I, I trusted them to always take care of everything, but it was, it was very different, and that's when my brain started to shift, and I realized, like, something's really not right. And at that time, um, I hadn't really had much contact with my family members that sexually abused me, and I was trying to move on in my own way, so I was... Um, trying to be the person that I wanted to be and who I knew I was. And I was trying to find myself and figure things out for myself. And um, that was around the time when I started to really pay attention at church. (laughs) And I realized, like, I am loved. And I, I felt like I needed to express everything that happened throughout all those years to find freedom and to find joy in the happiness that 
my friends and family were also experiencing that I had felt I had lost. And so um, that was really the shift. The biggest shift was when I started to have that growing relationship with Jesus. And I realized like something's got to change because if this doesn't change, this will end the wrong way. Hmm. And in saying like this will end the wrong way, like in your mind, what was the wrong way? I think in my mind, I was thinking, well, I'm going to lose this relationship with my parents. Like there's no honesty within each other. I don't want to lose that relationship. I had already lost um, a lot of that relationship with my dad and I knew I wanted to gain that back. I was very close to him. And, um, I just realized there were things I wanted to gain in life. And I knew that I could gain those things in life if I would just be able to find someone to share with. And I think at that time, I was really struggling a lot with depression, um, anxiety, and I absolutely hated it. (laughs) I absolutely hated it. I was a lot more different than my friends, and I struggled in school um, academically, and a lot of it just kept piling up this, this, this responsibility to take care of my family, this feeling inside that I was guilty of what had happened to me, um, the fear of being around men, um, no matter who else was in the room, um, it was all piling up, and I think if I had just let it build up, I probably would have exploded. It would have maybe, who knows, potentially ended in suicide. Um, I probably would have ended up in a psych ward or um, just hurting myself. I, At that time, I wanted to live. I knew I didn't want to die, but I was struggling um, internally, and I had no clue what to do or what to change. And um, all I knew was I wanted that freedom. I wanted Diana back. So, in looking at what you said about, because earlier you said in in your culture, the concept of like depression, ADHD, mm-hmm. like mental health, like that just you just didn't have it. Yes, it's not a thing. Um, a lot of people are saying, "Oh, you just need sleep, or oh, you need to stop hanging out with those people. They're they're doing things, and, and that's why you're feeling this way." Or you know, that's just, that's just not real. It's very, very stigmatized in the Hispanic Latino community, um, especially, especially in men. Um, just the idea of pride within a family is very big and having something like this, that would just, it's like a downfall for a family. So, so were you diagnosed with depression and anxiety? I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety. So actually at around 12 years old was when I went to a student counselor at my school with a friend and um, somehow the conversation that she was having with the counselor triggered something within my brain, which at that time, um, I forget the medical terminology for it, but my brain had completely wiped the whole experience out. Now that my um, family members were not living at home with us and I was not around them as often, my brain just completely wiped it out, which is crazy. It's crazy what your brain does as a defend mechanism. And um, that was that was the time when I shared everything. I had to call my parents, tell them they needed to come to the school because the counselor had to talk to them. And then I shared with them my experience, not the full truth, but I did share some of it, um, enough for them to have to start a case. And luckily I was very, very fortunate. Um, my parents believed me right away. They didn't question me at all. Um, they just wanted to know like, what, what do we have to do next? And of course the counselor, Um, referred us to a psychologist and they did clinically diagnose me with depression and anxiety and um, we went through all the events kind of bringing everything back again into my brain and it was determined that the sexual abuse did happen so around that time 12 and 13 was around when I was diagnosed officially once I had already uh, come forward with my truth to my parents so So being diagnosed with depression anxiety did that come with medications it did. Um, I did not get that medication. So at that time, my parents were very skeptical of this medication. They did not believe I needed that medication. Um, 
So for a while, I did not <laughs> take sure. that medication. Um, it took a lot of conversations. Um, unfortunately, a lot of deep conversations I did not want to have with my parents, but it took a lot of honesty and um, a lot of honesty with my parents to be able to <laughs> get this medication. And yes, once by the time I was 14, I, um, I did start this medication and I was on it until maybe around 16 years old. Um, I took it regularly along with therapy sessions then, yeah. So you said, though, that the school counselor was kind of the first person that this came to have some understanding of. Yes. Yeah, she was the first person I shared my experience with. Um, she was just a trusted professional, and I knew... She wouldn't share with anyone. Of course, she had to share with parents. And I did know that in the back of my mind. And I think that might be the main reason why I told them because I didn't know exactly how to share this with my parents. Because how do you tell them, you know, your one child <laughs> has been abused? And um, it was very difficult for me to even bring it up. But I knew, I knew I was not the same Diana that I could be. And I wanted that to change. So I went ahead and shared with her and then once our parents arrived I shared with them and then of course everyone else found out once we got to the point of a trial but um yeah so how did did you go with your friend to the counselor like how did that actually come out yeah so the reason we went to the counselor was because my friend was going through her parents divorce um and I said, you know what, why don't we go to the counselor and you can talk with her? She was just really struggling. She cried during lunch and I was kind of tired of seeing her cry so much. And I wanted her to find the healing that I thought she could have. And so I went to the counselor with her for that reason. And she was just talking and something she said just triggered that thing in my brain. And I was like, oh my word, I need to, I need to tell someone and then in sharing with the counselor, you said the counselor had you call your parents. Your yes. parents came in. Yes. And so then you mentioned that there was a trial. Yes. So yeah. when did the trial start? How did that go? Um, the trial kind of started. So, so the time that I told my parents was probably the fall time. Um, then the trial began after Christmas. Um they did some investigating, and then I finally went in. They got my testimony recorded. I luckily did not have to sit in the courtroom. Um, I think when, if you're under 18, I believe, or it could be 15, I'm not 100% sure, um, you don't have to actually physically be in the courtroom. They will either do a voice recording or a video recording of your testimony, and then they will play it at certain times throughout the um, trial. And so that's what I did. I went in and I said my testimony um, in a room with, I believe, three lawyers present, uh, one child psychologist, and then one, I believe it was a sexual assault care person, um, just someone who was experienced in people um, having that experience of sexual assault as a support person in there specifically for me. And my parents were also there. Um, luckily, <laughs> I didn't actually recount my entire story at the counselor's office. I did share some, but I didn't tell the entire story. And luckily, um, when we went to give my testimony, my parents did not have to physically be in the room with me because I don't know if I could have done it at that time um, with it being so fresh and me coming out with my story. But I did have the lawyer and the sexual assault care person in the room with me. Um, everyone else was behind a tinted window and then my parents were in the waiting room, which made it so much easier to share what I needed to share with that lawyer. And then, so that was when you were 13? Yes, yes. That's when I was, I think I was 12 and a half. I couldn't, yeah, no. Yeah, I was about 13. So some, like, but I mean, honestly, like going to like you were starting your teenage years with having a trial yes so i did start that <laughs> it was crazy because i think they were really trying to wait it out before the end of the school year but it did come out before the end of the school year 
Um, I remember we were at home. It was absolutely crazy. And I still remember vividly. I can see it. Um, we were watching the news at home and it came up like this person is, um, this person will be going to trial for sexual abuse against a minor. And it was my uncle's face on the TV. And it basically recounted like, very short summary of my story and I was just kind of like oh I did not I did not know that's what happens when you say that and I think I had this great immense fear and I just remember starting to cry and my parents were holding me and of course it came out in the newspaper and I was like why why would they do that I was so upset and my parents were trying vigorously to figure out like how do we get this off and um it was before the end of the school year, so everyone was like, who was it? Who could have been? Like, do you know this person? And so yeah. rumor went around in school, and I just, I felt so much shame that I just didn't want to go to school. And I remember my parents pulled me out for about a week, and then I went back in. But it lasted about until the end, around the end of the school year, until the beginning of the next school year. So it took a couple months um to do the investigation and then it took another couple months for like the actual physical trial and um we ended up winning the case of course and so my uncle got deported back to his home country and that was the end of it i didn't hear anything else afterwards um other than getting uh sessions with this sexual assault care person and it was a done deal so what was, the, the case was done. Yes. But the effects weren't done. No. Um, I still felt ashamed. I still felt guilty. I still felt like I failed my family in not protecting them. We, of course, had um, family members who did not believe me because, of course, who wants to believe that your family would hurt a child? Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a point at the end of the trial where, my lawyer looked over at me and she goes, do you have any questions about what was just said? Do you have any thoughts, anything you want to talk about? And I was like bawling my eyes out. And I said, my family's going to hate me. And she said, that is not. <laughs> I wanted to just punch this lady at 13, 14 years old. She goes, that should not be your main concern right now. <laughs> but I was so, so upset. I, I felt that I failed my family and that I had brought so much shame towards my parents and I and my brother now at the time since he was already born but it was it was difficult and that was so time timeline round 14 trial is done yes but earlier you stated that was actually when you started your medications yes yeah so I was just had now yes um, around the time of the event trial, I think my parents realized just how <laughs> how hard I was taking the whole trial process, and um, that's where all that honesty came in, all of those conversations came in, and of course, um, family members were saying things in front of our faces that you just don't want to hear about your child, and after having experienced such a traumatic event, so of course, my parents, that's when they were like, yeah. Let's, let's just go ahead and do this. She needs a little extra help, which luckily um, it did help. It did. And then, so for, you said from about 14 to 16 you were taking the medication. Yes. And everything had kind of come out. Mm-hmm. The trial was done. You had won. Yes. But where did the healing process take you? And, like, how... Did it start at 14? Did it take till later? Kind of, did your healing process start, you know, once you first told the counselor? Where was that in your journey? Yeah, no, I there felt like there was no healing whatsoever at the time of sharing um, more just of the guilt and shame, of course. And I don't think I truly found the healing that I was looking for until around the time that I was 16. I just kept struggling with this identity that I had and um, who I was, who I lost, and who I wanted to be. And I struggled all that time um, between 14 and 16 in figuring out who I was because I had this whole persona that I was acting out. And 
um, the truth is out now, so I can't I can't do that anymore. And here I am at 14, 16, trying to figure myself out and um, figure out what my personality is. What do I like to do? Um, I don't have to do chores all day. That's um, not my job to watch over my brother and be his protector. Like, what? who am I? <laughs> I was so lost, and I did find myself um, just kind of questioning my whole life and um, what I would do now. And so it was this internal struggle of who am I? And I think a lot of it had to do with me just having that growing relationship with God at that time. I was just mentally struggling and I knew that God could change people. And I've heard my whole life, you know, he can heal you. And so I was honest with God and that's truly the moment when I found um, healing. I was just happier. I was not scared of everything. I could be in the same room with my dad <laughs> and not have any fear. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even eat dinner with him without thinking, like, oh, my word, he's going to, like, come across the table and do something to me. And um, that moment that I um, found that relationship with Jesus, I felt like I could finally come out with my full truth to my parents. And um, like I said before, I didn't actually share my full truth at the counselors. I only shared part of the truth just because I was scared. <laughs> I have no other explanation to but the fact that I was scared. And um, once I was 16, I, I realized um, I can do this. I can be honest with them. They've shown me no reason to um, not be honest with them, which unfortunately a lot of um, victims of sexual abuse do not have that relationship with their parents or anyone at all. So it's, I was very fortunate to have that um, dynamic with my parents. And so I, I shared absolutely everything. I did not hold anything back. And it was like this weight had just absolutely lifted off my shoulders. And I was like, I can start fresh now. This is who I am. And so looking back at your healing process really started and for you it was developing a relationship with Jesus and being honest even mm -hmm. with him yes yeah I mean even just talking to Jesus I was scared to do that which sounds kind of crazy because you can't see Jesus <laughs> and so I'd just be in my room alone and I'd be like nope just you and me. <laughs> what do you want to talk about? <laughs> you know, I did not. I was even scared to admit that I was having these feelings. I, I didn't want to admit that I was a completely changed person after this experience and that I was no longer the same. But I realized that I was still the same Diana that God loved. And I was still the same Diana that um, he made me to be and that I could find my identity in him. And so... Just knowing that God's perspective of me never changed, even though mine had, um, it really helped to see the other side of things. And, and knowing that my parents, even though they knew all of what had happened um, so far to that point, and they still loved me and they still treated me like the old Diana that uh, was outgoing and that was kind, um, it was very reassuring to me and being able to share the rest of my story with them. And you even mentioned, like, not everybody has a support system like yeah. a family. Yeah, unfortunately, not everyone does. Um, it's crazy because most of sexual abuse actually stems from within the home or someone you know, a very close friend, a very close family member. Um, most of the times, those cases are within the family. And so it's just very hard to share with another family member, like, hey, your family member did this and this, and who wants to believe that, right? So it's just, it's difficult to share. Um, I luckily did not have that case, but if you are experiencing that loneliness and not able to find that support system within your family, find someone, a counselor or a close friend that you can trust and just to share the experience, even just sharing, um, if you're not to the point of taking it to a trial or sharing it publicly, just in private, lets you take that weight off your shoulders and, and you'll realize you're not guilty of anything. You are a victim and 
not just a victim, but a survivor of something very hard that unfortunately many women experience and that you are surrounded by people who do love you and care for you and you can find healing within that. And I think a lot of people with looking at sexual assault, it can be a very uncomfortable topic to address. Mm -hmm. And it's, as you've stated, creates a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. And so even being willing to talk about it on this podcast, like I really don't take lightly. And so yeah. thank you yeah. for being willing to yeah. get on and to encourage those because it's, it is very prevalent. Mm -hmm. It's a very real problem. Yes. Yes. And it seems to be getting more common, unfortunately, especially in young people, um, in all age ranges, but it's, it's become part of my testimony. Um, and I don't necessarily take pride in the fact that it happened to me, but I am proud of where I am now and the person that I have found um, that I am. And just realizing that I overcame something so traumatic and that I was able to find that strength within me to be able to share because I am living such a fulfilling life now. And there is hope in sharing. So... Let's um, look at then, you're at 16, yes. you've shared with your parents, Yes. everything is known. Yes, everything is out in the light. <laughs> I am a completely per different person. I am a completely different person. I, I know who I am and I've entered this fresh start in my life, new chapter in my book and um, before then, I, I struggled very hard to connect with men, and <laughs> I entered that phase where I wanted to um, go into a relationship, but it was very difficult for me to open up. I had just reconnected my relationship with my dad, and now here I am, 16, all my friends have boyfriends, and I'm just here like, what? <laughs> you let your boyfriend hang out with you alone in a room? I was terrified. I was terrified of having any sort of experience with um, another person when you shared it with your family and everything's out and now you're starting to have more trust in other relationships mm -hmm. and earlier you talked about like really learning who diana was mm -hmm. what was the difference that started to happen once everything was out trust was being established who was diana becoming well, Diana was the best person possible. <laughs> um, she was happy. She had lots of friends. She was strong. She did not let anything get in her way. Um, actually, at that point, I had been part of a lot of activities at school, but I started getting more involved in things. Um, just in general, having a more fulfilling life. Um, and I... I was just happy. <laughs> I, I don't think I had ever fully been happy until that point. I think my whole life, I just felt lost and I felt disgusting and I no longer felt that. I felt free and it was life-changing, truly. Yeah, and something you said, um, and I'm someone who has been blessed to not have to experience sexual abuse, but I've had many people come to me and share with me that for them in experiencing sexual abuse they just feel dirty all the time mm -hmm. they feel like they've suffered a loss that they will never be able to regain yeah, yeah. but then also they're just genuine not not in the sense of, like, they are, but, like, they believe that they are worthless. Yes, yes. And that's a really, really common thing. I remember <laughs> it sounds crazy to me now, but, I mean, it's it's so true. And it, it, it's so integrated into your mind that you are dirty and you're, you're disgusting and you shouldn't be around people. And I remember at a young age, I'd be in the shower scrubbing my body raw, just hoping to let all the shame and everything just go down the drain and then I'd be a brand new person and so um up until I was 16 I want to say I did feel that way and just um I didn't value my life the way I should have and I think that was the moment once everything came out that I realized um 
this story is not who I am. It's just something that I have experienced. And I can now show other people, hey, you can show from this. You can be the person you want to be. Um, in the end, things will be okay and, and everything will work out. When you say in the end, everything will be okay, everything will work out, in the end, meaning? Yeah, I don't think there ever is an end, <laughs> truly. Um, because, I mean, sexual abuse, it affects your whole life. I mean, even up until now, I still, um, I don't want to say I'm experiencing PTSD, but I do have those memories of things happening. And so um, it's part of my testimony, it's part of my story. Um but it doesn't define who I am or who I could be. So even though it happened, mm-hmm. it's been put in its place and you're saying, I now am in control. Yes. Not yes. in control. Yes, yes. Um, I think that's a lot of what a victim or a survivor experiences, that loss of control within their life. They are now under the control of the person abusing them because there's so much fear and shame and guilt and you can't share anything because this person might do something. So once you fully um, share your story and, and you start that healing process within your life, it's it's very freeing and, and you start to realize that you can acknowledge that experience and acknowledge that it happened in your life and acknowledge the hurt and the pain that you went through but you can also see that you are now a different person that can do what they want to do and that can heal in the way that they need and can become um, that person that they've desired to be after that loss of control in their life. If you were to look back at somebody who is experiencing this or maybe not experiencing it currently, but have or has a background of sexual abuse that maybe has not come forward, or maybe they have come forward, um, maybe they weren't believed, maybe they were believed, but mm-hmm. regardless, somebody who is still kind of trapped mm-hmm. in that shame and that guilt, what would you what would you say to them? That's such a tough question because <laughs> um, no matter how much you know it's true. Um, of course, there's always that reminder of what friends and family or people around you would say, but there's such a great healing that comes that weight that's lifted, and I would encourage you to find that healing in your life, to find that person, to speak it out into the world <laughs> um, in the way that is most comfortable with you. Um, it just helps you so much, and in the end, it's rewarding to find who you are, and it's rewarding to see that no matter the challenges that you have already faced, um, the oppression that you may have faced, it now has no hold over you, and you you are a new person, and you can start fresh, and you can do all the things you desire to do. So it's kind of like it's a part of your story, but it's not your entirety of your story. Yes, yes. There is more to my story, and it's not um, Diana, the sexual abuse survivor, but now I am Diana, who is married and has a child and is living a happy life and going to church and has friends, and (laughs) it, it is a very fulfilling life, and it's something that everyone deserves. No one deserves to be kept in that jail in their mind. Um, it's just a great freedom to have. And I get the privilege of knowing you personally, but your family relationship as well Mm -hmm. is at least seemingly quite strong just in my interactions with your family, that your, your parents and your brother and you. So that's even something to me, that's a huge Mm -hmm. testament of how far you can go that even that distrust can be built again. Right. Even though your parents weren't necessarily the problem. Right. It's that mental fear and it just, it completely goes away and with that honesty and that, that coming forward. Um, I don't think I've ever been closer to my family than I am now. And I absolutely love them. And 
I wouldn't spend every minute of the day with them, but, <laughs> but I do. I know absolutely anything that happens in my life, I can come to them and everything will be okay. And so, and like you said, somebody who maybe doesn't have that system per se, but still doing what they can to find that system. Yeah, just finding that trusted person that you have in your life. Maybe it's the one person in your life that's involved and knows all all things um, about you. Share it with that person. Don't, Don't be afraid. Don't let that shame and guilt hold you. Don't let pridefulness hold you. It, it's more common than a lot of people know. There are thousands and thousands of women um, behind you, supporting you, um, in coming forward with your truth. And it's, it's a very powerful story. And just being able to share it with just even one person is just very liberating. So I encourage you, um, if you don't have that support system within your family, just find that one person and that one person will help you. It'll make a difference in your life. And I know, I mean, just for clarity on, on, for those listening, Diana's just purely speaking on that. There's a lot of women behind you because she herself is speaking from the point of a woman, but I know that just behind closed doors, we talked about how even men, of course, having that support. So if you're listening and, that's a that's a different topic for a different <laughs> podcast, and I'm excited for uh, more episodes to come. But the truth is, it, regardless of who has been abused, it's important that you know there are people who care. And I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's so heartbreaking to hear when people say like they just didn't have anybody for so long. Right, right. I mean, and there there just are there are people yeah. that haven't been believed for years. Yeah. Um, but today's a different day It is, and your story, you you can have a different chapter today. Yeah. And so, like you said, there is hope. And I really am curious if you could look at somebody who has like myself, Mm -hmm. who has not had to go through sexual assault, but knows people who have gone through sexual assault. Mm -hmm. How can I be a really good support system? Well, there's so many ways. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, even not knowing if they have gone through something traumatic, just letting that person know that you are trustworthy, um, for them to be able to share absolutely anything with you, you know, don't, don't go behind people's backs and, you know, spread lies, you know. I think trusting someone is the hardest thing for a person who's gone through sexual abuse to do. And to find that one person sometimes is very difficult, the person that you can trust. So just make yourself known as trustworthy and then just be there for them all the time. Um, send that text and say, hey, like, how are you feeling this morning? Like, are you doing okay? Do you need me to come spend a couple hours just, you know, not even doing anything, but just reminding them that you believe them and that you will be there for them and um, helping them find the support system for healing, you know, encouraging them to go to therapy and encouraging them and everything that they're going through that, in the end, everything will be okay and that you are with them throughout that whole process. And so when you talk about being trustworthy, and you said that there's a lot of ways that people can be supportive. Right, so being trustworthy right. is one, and being trustworthy in the sense of not just only maintaining confident confidentiality, right, <laughs> yes, yes, but also showing yourself to be consistent. Right, right. And that's what is lacking in a lot of our lives. Um, going through the sexual abuse, the consistency of someone being there and the idea of, well, once I tell someone this, they're going to leave. They're going to walk right out of my life. And that's the end of it. And I shared my story for no reason. <laughs> and that's that's a great fear. And it's, it's a reasonable fear because it has happened to many people with family members that they've shared with. And it's very unfortunate. So just being, like you said, confidential and being consistent and just showing up, <laughs> it makes a great difference. It truly does. And then on, on that note, so being trustworthy, being consistent, just showing up. And these are things that those looking on, and maybe they don't even necessarily know, but you said 
you kind of had a shift in your personality mm-hmm. once sexual assault entered the picture. Oh, yeah. So if people are noticing a shift mm-hmm. in someone's yeah. life that is kind of drastic, yeah, what's a good way to connect with them but also let them feel safe like and not attacked? Right. Oh, man. Being able to recognize the shift in someone is, is very important because it can help someone come out a lot sooner than most people do. But I think just really connecting with someone and just knowing them, um, not just superficially, but in a very personal level, you just have to know the person. Sure. Well, Diana, thank you so much for being willing to come in and to just talk about your experience in, again, living through a very, uh, very traumatic event in your life. And like I said, a lot of people, sexual assault is an uncomfortable conversation for a lot of people. Yeah. But if we could remove the stigma, if we could remove the awkwardness, the discomfort. Yeah. I would be very interested to see how that would change. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be life-changing for thousands of people. It'd be <laughs> it'd be a great feeling to know that people know that there is healing out there and that they can find that fresh start in their lives. So, yeah, I agree. Thank you for having me. I, I love sharing my story because I know um, there's various people out there who have gone through this that are struggling with this right now and if they could just have a little push of encouragement they'd they'd find that healing themselves and the exciting news about this podcast is this is going to be a two-part podcast diana is going to come back (laughs) and she is going to share a part two of her story that is um separate but it kind of goes back to the amazing testimony that diana is here today and who diana has become because her story has not finished and like many of us we have multiple facets and layers of our story but um i'm just excited and very again very 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 thankful that you're willing to come on yes thank you for having me well everybody you have a wonderful day god bless bye-bye for listening if you enjoyed this content please leave a review and share if you'd like to donate at this time you can do so via venmo you can learn more in the descriptions say the pain will be back with another episode in two weeks and until then make a difference